1: Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician. I'm also the chair of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. DeVore Siegel. Hi. Hi, I'm excited to be here too. Yes. So I'm really excited because this is a personally important topic to me and I'm going to say right from the get-go that we have three people in this interview. We have you as a neurologist. I'm going to introduce you in just a minute and we have me as I said I'm a pediatrician and I've also said in multiple uh, podcasts I am also the mother of a young adult on the autism spectrum and so we have going to have three viewpoints hopefully weaved into this that of the neurologist, the pediatrician, and the mother. Okay, so I'm gonna introduce you in my usual dorky way. Um, Dr. Devorah Siegel is a pediatric neurologist at NYU Langone Health. Dr. Siegel received her BA in chemistry at Brooklyn College, City University of New York. She then earned her medical degree and a PhD in neuroscience at ICANN Mount Sinai School of Medicine. She completed her pediatrics and pediatric neurology training at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and then completed a fellowship in pediatric neurooncology at NYU Langone Medical Center she spent several years on faculty at the Weill Cornell, where she practiced general child neurology, providing inpatient and outpatient care with a subspecialty in neurogenetics. She is now a faculty member at NYU Langone, where she specializes in treating neurofibromatosis and pediatric neurooncology. So wow, that is super impressive. And I know thank how you. amazing you are because we have referred to you and <laughs> you were amazing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much for doing this with me. That's my pleasure. So let's start with just the basics. What is
2: autism? Sure, so the diagnosis of autism has changed a little bit in the last, Mm -hmm. uh, since I started medical school, that's for sure, which is a long time ago at this point, but essentially it's a deficit in social communication and repetitive patterns of behavior. Those are the Mm -hmm. two large categories of symptoms that um, that qualify one for a diagnosis of an autism spectrum disorder. And deficits in social communication can mean not speaking at all, but it can also mean children who have language and can speak, but aren't don't understand how to use language in a social setting. So mm-hmm. for example, it's difficult for them to tell a story or to have a conversation um, with another child and to understand when somebody shares their interests and, and is a part of the conversation. And it's called an autism spectrum disorder because there's a huge spectrum anywhere the language deficits can be anywhere in that continuum. Um, and the second category of, of symptoms that I mentioned is the restricted repetitive patterns of behavior and interests. So for example, children who are obsessed with Paw Patrol which is very common uh, among children of a certain age but will not talk about anything else and cannot you cannot get their interest about anything else. That's a very restricted um, pattern of interest or Patterns of repetitive behaviors. So, children who will take a toy truck and instead of sort of having pretend play and moving the truck along a track or saying beep, beep, and pretending the truck is making a delivery will hold the toy truck and just spin the wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's a repetitive pattern of behavior. They're also um, often sensory sensitivities that sort of get built into these repetitive patterns of behavior or restricted interest. And it could be sensory seeking behaviors or sensory avoidant behaviors or a combination of the two. Um, so those are the two big categories of symptoms. And, and we can get into the fine details of, of sort of what varieties we can see. Um, but the other key is that these have to be present from early childhood. So a child who was typically developing until age 11 and then develops restricted interests, for example, um, you cannot give a diagnosis of autism. That's something else. Um, and the, the, it used to be, uh, part of the criteria used to be that it cannot be attributed to another disorder. So uh, for example, a genetic disorder. However, we now recognize that autism symptoms or the the spectrum of, of autism symptoms can actually be features of many disorders. Mm-hmm. So that's no longer a, diagnose, a diagnostic criteria. Um, and the symptoms have to be impairing the child's ability to function. So, you know, many of us, some of us were ourselves kind of maybe quirky kids or no quirky kids who have specific interests, for example, or aren't the best at social communication, but if it's not impairing a child's ability to function, either at a mild, moderate, or severe level, they would not qualify for a diagnosis of autism.
1: Right, and that's what we mean by spectrum. I mean, by definition, spectrum will be all the way from severe to so mild that it's not impairing function, and at some point, you can just be quirky, but not meet criteria, right? I've noticed, by the way, there's some autism advocates that almost choose to be on one side of the, you know, on that side of the fence. But I mean, at some point there is diagnostic criteria. How do you diagnose autism? So every child at their 18-month well visit should be given something called
2: the MCHAT, which is Mm -hmm. the modified checklist for autism. And as a general pediatrician, Mm -hmm. I'm sure this is part of your bread and butter. And it asks some simple screening questions like, does your child, if you look at something across the room, will your child look at it with you? Um, things about pretend play, pointing. So that is, it's not a diagnostic tool. If someone quote fails the MCHAT, that doesn't mean that they have autism, mm-hmm. but it is a screening tool that can help pick up some of the earliest signs of autism. Um, some children will see a neurologist after that to get a diagnosis. Some will see a developmental pediatrician. Um, sometimes a psychologist can make a diagnosis and sometimes a, a, the general pediatrician who knows the child well, will make the diagnosis. Um, In some cases, it's so obvious that a child meets the criteria, the diagnosis of autism sort of jumps out at you, but there are many cases where it's not so clear and having a more formalized uh, diagnostic uh, sort of protocol can help pin down whether or not a child actually has autism. So for example, one one tool that many developmental pediatricians use is called the ADOS. Mm-hmm. Um, which is is an observational tool to score some of these behavioral and communication um, symptoms and determine whether a child has autism or not. Now, do neurologists and psychiatrists do the
1: ADOS as well?
2: Um, some neurologists do. Most of us do not. I mm-hmm. personally do not do the ADOS myself.
1: You, you do need specialized training and it takes a long time. So and it's a time consuming, right? Yes. right. Okay. So First of all, um, the ADOS is very time consuming. And so, developmental pediatricians do it, but it can be very hard to get an appointment with a developmental pediatrician. I know in my practice, there's usually a nine to 12 month wait for a developmental pediatrician, at least the Absolutely. one that takes insurance. Yeah. You know, you can go out of pocket, you can go to uh, potentially a neuropsychologist or develop, you know, um, A psychologist that might be able to do it might have training for it. Um, But I want to point out that at least in New York, through early intervention, it's often available. At the younger ages, I don't know if it's easily available outside of early intervention. I know early intervention does it. So, from
2: what I understand, and you may have more experience with this than I do, um, absolutely. From an early intervention, it's it can be part of that evaluation if the evaluators are concerned that a child might have autism. Once someone's in the school system, that's typically not a part of the evaluation. They would do more IQ testing, um, testing for learning difficulties, but not really the ADOs. Um, and and you know, an a- like I said before, an ADOs is not always necessary to make a diagnosis, but even sometimes when the diagnosis is very clear cut to us as physicians, insurance companies will require an ADOS on the books before they'll pay for services. So it can be beneficial for to have that formalized evaluation
1: from many right. different perspectives. Right. And they may not accept a pediatrician's diagnosis, even if the pediatrician, it's clear as day to them. Now, right. back to when it's being as clear as day, the, the MCHAT, which we do at 18 months and again at 24 months, it should be done. These are early ages, so I find that for the more severe cases, it can pick them up. Although, like you said, it can also overcall. Just because they don't pass the MCHAT does not mean that they have autism. Um, but the other kids that are not as clear cut can easily get missed by the MCHAT. And because the MCHAT is parent report, if the parent is not answering it, I don't want to say not truthfully, they don't see it, then that's what all you have to go on. So I've had that's, many, that's many cases, true. even of more severely impaired kids who've been missed because the parent answered all the questions as the normal answers on the MCHAT, both at eight and twenty-four Right, and, and 20 sometimes,
2: more. and parents are 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 very well intentioned, obviously, mm-hmm. but sometimes. And I'm a parent as well. We don't always realize uh, our biases or our thought processes when we look at our own children. So for example, I might ask a parent, oh, does your child follow directions? So if you say, put this in the garbage or bring me your shoes, can they do that? And sometimes the parents will say yes, but when I see the child in the office, I'll see the parent saying, bring me your shoes, bring me your shoes, bring me your shoes. And the child might not actually understand the words, But after long enough of that parent pointing at the shoes, they say, okay, I guess they want the shoes and they'll bring the shoes. Right. So, um, exactly. So, so yes, it is that you do need a certain degree of training to
1: sometimes to be able to pick up autism, especially on the milder end of the spectrum. And that's one reason why it's helpful to get it early. And we can talk a little bit more about that later, about treatment, why why it matters. Because I have parents who are like, they they don't want the diagnosis, or they're resistant to it, um, or they think, I don't want my child labeled. My child's not a cereal box. And I always say, no, this does not define who your child is, but it can define the services they get. And that's why I think early intervention can be motivated to get that ADOS so that they can justify doing the applied behavioral analysis, the ABA therapy that is... Pretty, you know, gold standard and has evidence base, but we can get to that later. Um, yeah. What else could it be? Because, like we said, you could fail the MCHAT and not have autism. What else could it be? Right. So,
2: in some cases, it's just a language delay. Mm-hmm. So, whenever you have a language delay and some behavioral issues. Autism is always at the top of our list and parents are, are very savvy these days. Everyone mm-hmm. knows what autism is um, and everyone's worried about autism, but sometimes it's just language delay and a child will catch up given enough time. And that's why I emphasized before that social communication. It's not just not having words, it's, it's that ability to communicate socially. So if you have a child who might be a little bit delayed in their speech, but they're pointing, they're using nonverbal ways of communication. They're getting their point across um, without using words, that child likely does not have autism. Um, Another thing I sometimes see is severe ADHD, which can present in young kids. And sometimes those children are so hyperactive, they can't really sit still long enough to make eye contact, for example, which is one of the things we look at. Um, So that can be mistaken for autism. And then there are children who have more global disorders of development, where if everything is delayed, if their walking is delayed, their fine motor is delayed, their language is delayed, they may eventually meet criteria for autism, but it's harder to make that diagnosis when in, in a young child who's delayed on every level. Um, and it might not be autism. It might be another disorder of, of delayed development.
1: Or right, impaired and development. autism can, of course, coexist. And I think that that's important. They used to call it autistic features, which is a word that I hate, because I think having the autism label can be so helpful for services. And when you say features, you're saying, well, it kind of looks like it, but it isn't. it Either it is or it isn't. And just going back to, to labels for just a second, we mentioned that the diagnostic criteria have changed. We're now saying autistic spectrum disorder. We are no longer using, correct me if I'm wrong, pervasive developmental disorder. Correct.
2: I can't another- tell you how many times I see that in people's charts, but we are not using PDD-NOS, which is- right pervasive developmental and not other, developmental disorder not otherwise specified. We're also not, no longer using Asperger right. syndrome, which was the sort of mild end of the spectrum of autism. Now everyone is under the umbrella of autism and you classify the level of functioning. So severely impaired, moderately impaired, mildly
1: impaired based on how much support a child needs to help them function. So how would we, okay, we talked a little bit about um, doing the ADAS, which is something that's not really easily accessible. Except through early intervention, and if you manage to get to a developmental pediatrician. How else do we diagnose this besides impressions and besides that testing? And how else do we rule out other things?
2: Yeah. So, as a neurologist, I'm, um, as I said before, I don't do the formalized uh, um, scales to diagnose mm-hmm. autism. Um, but people, children are sometimes sent to me to quote rule out autism or rule in autism. Um, Often, I look at these diagnostic criteria and see if they meet them without necessarily doing the the very, very exhaustive ADOS. Um, And when they're sent to me, the underlying question is, could this be something else neurologic and not autism? So we look for other features. Does a child have um, seizures, for example? That might, it still might be an autism spectrum disorder, but it might be something else. Does the child have delays in other domains, like we said? Did the child develop typically up until a certain point and then regress? That's always a red flag that this might not be autism. So one, uh, one disorder that's quite rare, but as neurologists, we always learn about this is called landau kleffner syndrome, where mm-hmm. children are typically developing uh, until, until early childhood, usually about age four or five, and then start to lose language skills. Um, and th- those children are actually having seizures continuously during sleep. And when you treat the seizures, the language comes back. Um, So it was not autism, it was a seizure disorder.
1: Right, Um, had some patients with that actually. So I don't know how rare it is. I wonder if it, maybe it's not that rare and it's not being always looked for. So you have to really be careful to make sure that other diagnoses are not missed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So besides one more thing I I wanna remember to say is that um, hearing impairment, even though we do newborn hearing screens any child with a language delay should get a hearing test. Yes, absolutely, and
2: that's, uh, for a while, at least that was part of the standard early intervention screening they would recommend hearing tests for language delays. And thank you for bringing that up. A child might not be communicating because they're not hearing. Right. And it might be, you know, actually a hearing deficit, which is
1: relatively easily addressed. Right, right, so that's that's really important. So, speaking of that, what do you think the workup should be for a child? who's suspected of having autism, right? So we're sort of and, alluding to like, div- different pieces. It, and by the way, <laughs> we can talk later right. about if we hopefully about things that are associated with autism, which includes seizures. So sure. it's not either or many, right. many children on the spectrum have a seizure disorder. Right, so
2: um, hearing tests for any child with language laid, that's key, mm-hmm. uh,
1: absolutely. Um,
2: and really other than that, autism is a clinical diagnosis. So it's based on symptoms. So there's no no single blood test that can tell you that a child has autism. An MRI is not going to necessarily help you diagnose autism. Most children with with autism have normal MRIs um, of their brain. Many parents will say, well, can't we just get an MRI? Maybe there's something in the brain that's causing this. And I'll get to when you would do that in a second. But Mm -hmm. for the majority of children with autism, that is not helpful. Um, an EEG is another test that some people do, which is where you put electrodes on the scalp and measure brainwave activity. Again, that is not part of the diagnosis of autism. If you're concerned about seizures, it can help you diagnose seizures, but it will not help you diagnose autism. So it's tricky because in some of these, some children who are a little bit more borderline or the diagnosis isn't entirely clear, it's not like strep throat where you do a throat culture and you make a diagnosis. It's, there's a lot more clinical judgment involved. Um, That said, like I said before, when a child comes to me, I look for anything that could be underlying that could be causing the delays. So I do a very careful neurologic exam. I look for signs of any weakness, for example, in one leg or one arm that might suggest something like a structural abnormality in the brain or a stroke that a child might have had around the time of birth. Um, We look for facial features that might suggest an underlying genetic disorder. We look for any other, anything on, on our exam that might say there's an underlying cause that we can identify. Um, now, the, the, the standard of care for in terms of testing for autism it, to look for genetic causes is doing something called a karyotype, a microarray, and fragile X. Mm-hmm. Um, fragile X is a, a relatively common disorder in boys and a relatively common cause of autism. So that's been the standard of care for a long time. We, as time progresses, we're learning that there are actually hundreds and hundreds of genes associated with autism. Um, So there are certainly families who want more
1: testing and will do more extensive genetic testing to try to identify a cause. So that, I just want to emphasize that, that amount of genetic testing, you said karyotype, fragile X, and? Microarray. And a micro microarray, array. which is more mm-hmm. not whole the whole gene on the whole exome sequencing, but a microarray is much more extensive right. than we used to do, is now the standard of care for all kids diagnosed with autism. Yes,
2: although, although just a little caveat there, many geneticists are no longer doing carry type. so carry types. So types as uh, some of you will remember from high school biology, those pictures Mm -hmm. with the little squiggles of all the chromosomes and X and Y, et cetera. So that looks for large pieces that are missing or duplicated or switched among different chromosomes. A karyotype looks, uh, I'm sorry, a microarray looks for very small pieces of genes that might be missing or duplicated. So some geneticists are no longer doing karyotypes, um, but there's still a utility in the evaluation of autism for large to look for large pieces of genes that might be switched around or not where they're supposed to be that could be causing autism.
1: Right, and fragile X is this very special testing that wouldn't be encompassed by the other two. So that's a Correct. really important point. I'm not sure that even all physicians are aware that they should no, be doing probably this. Probably right. So that's a really important point. Thank you for clarifying that. That was actually one of my questions, but we, you did a little bit of the cause, but we're going to go more into what is the cause of autism? We can say right up front, it's not vaccines.
2: <laughs> yes, we can say that. And there have been many studies done, uh, studies that include tens of thousands of children um, mm-hmm. that have not found a difference in incidence of autism and children who receive vaccines and children who did not. Um, The reason why vaccines have gotten a bad rap without going into too much of the details of some unscrupulous and and unethical physicians, um, but it's also a matter of just time course. Remember, most children get all their vaccines between ages six months and two years. And that's also when the symptoms of autism will first present because that's those first two years are the key, key, that's the key time period for development. So issues with language, with social communication um, will show up in the first two years of life. So, you know, everyone wants to find a reason. We're all looking for reasons in life, for patterns, something to explain the unexplainable and the not understandable. Um, So vaccines have gotten the the bad rap there, but there's no reputable evidence to support a link between vaccines and autism.
1: Right. And I believe there are even interesting studies of siblings of children on the spectrum, because parents will often withhold vaccines as subsequent children because they're so fearful. And there was no difference with the children who were, who had a genetic, you know, potential genetic predilection in terms of whether they were vaccinated or not. So that is pretty good evidence, I think. I um, so then what does cause, if we know vaccines do not, what does?
2: That's a really big question mark. (laughs) We have
1: a much better understanding of autism
2: than we used to do. Like Mm -hmm. I said before, at this point, there are several hundred, even probably over closer to 2,000 genes that have been associated with autism. Some of them are one-to-one correlation. If a child has a variant in this gene, we know that it will cause autism. Most of them are not clear one-to-one correlations Mm -hmm. that this gene causes autism. We think there's a lot of complex interplay between genetics, Um, environments, we know that prematurity is a major risk factor for autism, extreme prematurity. Mm -hmm. So children born at 25 weeks, 26 weeks are much more likely to have autism than children born at full term. Um, Maternal infections around the time of delivery is also a risk factor. So there are certainly environmental factors that uh, that can contribute to the development of autism. And then there are genetic factors and that's genetics. So changes in a gene and epigenetics, which are changes that affect which genes are turned on and turned off. Um, So it's complex. We don't fully understand it. I think we're learning more as time progresses, but for many children with autism, we won't be able to identify a cause. At this point, the most recent data um, demonstrate that about 40% of children with autism will have an identifiable genetic cause, which is, Higher than I expected, honestly, when I looked it up. But that means that 60% of kids with autism will not have have an identifiable genetic cause.
1: Wait, but when you say identifiable genetic cause, are you talking about the kids who have a one-to-one and then those who was just an interaction together or all one-to-one? It can't be. No, all all a genetic
2: um, association, I should probably Mm -hmm. say.
1: It brings up a sticky question, and I'm going to say it, and I'm coming here from the parent perspective here because I understand this. You know, we have a lot of parents who become worried about all kinds of environmental triggers. You know, in their mind, vaccines are just one environmental trigger, which again, they've right. been studied. They've been studied, and we know the diseases that they prevent can actually legit legitimately cause autism, right? Yes. Like rubella, for example. So that has been studied. But what about other factors, do we know anything about environmental, say, toxins? Because I know that's a big thing. And I, I, yeah. I am concerned about it as a parent. I'll, I'll be yeah open about so,
2: it. So I think we don't really have good answers, but there's a lot of concern. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why we don't have good answers is if you think about, and, and just to sort of um, sidetrack a little bit, we know that the diagnosis of autism has been rising. Pretty markedly in the last, you know, generation, the last 30, twenty to thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's not entirely clear if the incidence of autism is actually going up or that people are more savvy about diagnosing autism. So it's it looks a like We have more kids,
1: and yeah, it's probably it's a combination.
2: combination. Yeah, for sure. I agree. But but um, you know, when you're thinking about environmental risk factors, think about the things, all the chemicals that we're exposed to, really from before birth, from conception, mm-hmm. and. Compared to the amounts of chemicals that were in our environment 50 years ago, um, there's so much more. From the baby bottles we use to the to the what's in the air, to car emissions, to what goes into building our houses. I mean, we we don't we have moved farther and farther away from using the products of our natural world, and everything in our living environment is is manufactured and involves chemicals. So there's a lot of work on toxins, environmental toxins. Um, toxins in food, uh pesticides and unfortunately it's very hard to pick out well this is the chemical that kids with autism are exposed to because we're exposed to thousands of chemicals from from before we're even born. Right. Um so there's definitely a lot of concern and I think there's probably something real there. I just it's hard going to be very hard to figure out what that is.
1: Right and I think from a prevention standpoint um and from a parent guilt standpoint I have to put this in there um, it's important to focus on what you can control and not what you can't control. So going forward, you know, as a parent, you can try to um, minimize your child's exposure, your family's exposure, but to go back and say, oh, you know, I had this virus and this exposure to this, you're gonna make yourself crazy, don't do it. (laughs) From one parent to another, don't do it. (laughs) That's true, absolutely true. And, you know, thinking
2: about a family and the children in a family, they all have pretty much the same exposures. Um, so clearly it's, it's, again, not a one-to-one correlation that this chemical causes autism. We think there's probably some complex interplay between genetic predisposition and, and environmental factors. Um, and there's only so much we can control as parents.
1: Right, and I think also parents get, and this is true for parents in general, not even parents of kids on the spectrum, parents who feel like they want to prevent it, they're scared, they know that there's stuff in the environment and they get so, some parents are getting so anxious that I don't think that they have it in perspective. There's a concept of the dose makes the poison. And sometimes they're worried about the most microscopic, and this by the way comes down to vaccines as well, when they're worried and something about injection somehow seems worse of these microscopic amounts of things, as opposed to say larger things in the environment. I mean, I had a parent, and I was who was not afraid to vaccinate her kids. It was a family history. There was, you know, significant um, number of kids in the family with autism spectrum disorders. And then I said, um, you know, something like tuna fish. I'd be worried about their ingestion of tuna fish. Tuna fish has mercury in it. She says, no, that's one of their favorite foods. And it's probably more mercury in tuna than in, you know, vaccines. And <laughs> it's a different form of mercury, which stays in your body. It's harder to clear. So yeah. I think that it might be a good idea for um, people who are struggling with this to just sit with a nutritionist, you know, to just try to not go crazy about it, but minimize without it becoming, you know, a reading every ingredient and saying, Oh, this has this microscopic. I mean, you don't even know how much it has in it. So minimize, right. It makes sense. Try to make it a healthy diet.
2: And I have to say, you know, for some some of the families that i've worked with who are very invested in finding the cause of autism getting extensive genetic testing for example um, when they get a res- when families get a result that explains why their child has autism it doesn't necessarily change anything that we do for that child mm-hmm. but but it can just bring such a sense of relief that this is nothing i did i couldn't have prevented this i didn't cause this sometimes these things happen sometimes genetic variants happen and it's not it's nobody's fault and as a as a mother uh, we tend and fathers too but we tend to put a lot of guilt on ourselves and assume that everything is our fault um with life fortunately or unfortunately there's a lot that's not in our control right uh, and, and
1: what we can control is how we respond to it and how we handle right. it and how we help these kids absolutely and again even if you don't have that genetic link to focus on <clears throat> Don't again from my heart. Everybody else's heart who's dealing with this. Do not do that to yourself. Do not say, "Oh, if I didn't get sick when I was pregnant, or I didn't eat this food." Or, do not, do not go there. It's not something within your control, and nobody can control everything in life. It's a phase that you know we all go through as parents of children with special needs, and sometimes over and over and over. Um, get help if you're struggling with that. That's that's all I have to say. So let's go into treatment. Sure. What is the treatment? So the
2: one treatment that has evidence behind it, we're all, mm-hmm. as scientists and physicians, we're all about evidence. The treatment that actually has evidence behind it is ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis. And that has many years of evidence. And it's a form of behavioral therapy um, that helps train children with autism to, to sort of compensate for, for what they cannot do and, and learn behaviors that might come naturally to a child who does not have autism. So to learn to make eye contact, for example, a child who does not have autism just learns that innately and understands that. Um, to learn how to, for kids who are higher functioning on the autism spectrum, learn how to, how to engage in a back and forth conversation. Um, and then even skills like how to get dressed, how to be potty trained, how to eat with a knife and fork. Um, applied behavioral analysis is a method of teaching skills to children with autism that has shown really phenomenal success. Um, and the earlier it started, the better off kids will be.
1: Is that for all kids on the spectrum on all parts of it? Is that appropriate? So, uh, for most kids on the spectrum,
2: it is appropriate. I've seen mm-hmm. it, the rare kid on the spectrum who cannot we can't tolerate the rigidity of ABA, um, and it, if, any, if any of you have seen that done, it is quite a rigid program. And some mm-hmm. kids with autism just don't uh, don't do well with that in that setting. But for the, it is sort of the standard practice um, in schools for children with autism, and to to uh, you know that it is the standard treatment for
1: autism. But when we say autism, it's a wide spectrum. So say we have a child who might it have is. been called Asperger's who's very high functioning. Would that be what would be most helpful? Or would you say maybe social skills? So yes, yeah, so that's the other thing. I'm, social I'm pointing skills. you in a direction here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. And as you were talking, <laughs> I was thinking I should talk about social skills classes. So social skills classes are are very helpful for kids who are higher functioning, and actually mm-hmm. they often integrate a little bit of ABA into mm-hmm. the social skills. So, but it's not, is not One one size right. It's not one size fits all. It can be tailored and adjusted to fit the child. But yes, so social skills classes, often in a group setting, is where children will, again, learn how to have a back and forth conversation, for example, how to recognize when someone's not interested in what you're talking about. So for a child who's not on the spectrum who might be going on and on about, uh, we'll go back to Paw Patrol. Eventually mm-hmm. they'll realize when their listener is, is zoned out, but a child on the spectrum might not rec- recognize that and can go on for hours about their interests without realizing that they're not having a conversation anymore, they're lecturing.
1: right? Um, or not be able to interact with someone else's interest, which is the opposite right. skill. Right, 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 100%. How to
2: how to tell when somebody's joking. That's a, a very difficult skill for many kids mm-hmm. on the spectrum.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of accessing these services, <clears throat> right, mm-hmm. so we so have in New York, mm-hmm. we'll sorry, go for go New York because we're both from New York. Go for it.
2: <laughs> we are. I, I technically live in New Jersey, but I do work in New York and I'm from New York. Um, New York has very extensive uh, um, services available for kids with autism. It's probably the best state in the country. I can't say that definitively, but the services available are quite, quite good and quite extensive. So accessing those services through early intervention. So early intervention is a a federally mandated state-sponsored program that goes from birth to age three that assesses children for developmental disabilities, whether autism or any other developmental delay and provides services. In New York, it's free of charge and based in the child's home or in a daycare setting if that's where they're located. Other states are a little different. New Jersey has a cost-sharing program that's based on family income. Um, but the brunt of the cost is is, uh, taken on by the state. So this is a free program where if a child qualifies for it, therapists will come to your home and work with your child. And that can include, if a child has a diagnosis of autism, that often includes ABA. Um, Once children are in the school system, ABA can again be accessed through the board of education, through specialized preschools, and then in older grades um, through specialized schools. I make it sound very easy, for some families it is. For some families, it's a struggle to get, depending on what district you live in, to get your school district to provide services that your child needs, but but it is technically at least available through the Board of Education, ABA, um, social skills classes, speech therapy, for children who have a diagnosis with autism. Now, in addition, some of these services are available through insurance. So. There, um, there are laws that insurances have to provide. Medical insurances have to provide services for autism. What extent those services, to what extent those services will be provided, and what the costs will be, will vary from insurance to insurance. Right, and the quality as well. And the quality, absolutely. I've had families who are, weren't happy with their early intervention mm-hmm. provided therapists and chose to go privately through insurance so that they can handpick who they who who gives them, who, you know, who serves their child. Um, Just remember though, by the way, if you are not happy with your child's provider through early intervention, you can always request someone different. So don't feel, a parent shouldn't feel like they're locked into whoever is given by the state.
1: Right, and this is advocacy 101, which is actually a separate, a separate talk. (laughs) A lot of what I do. (laughs) I know, I know me too. Um, So, Besides besides those therapies, often kids on the spectrum do have other delays and may be eligible for other therapies. And in terms of eligibility for these, you need to have a 25, at least in New York, a 25% delay in two or more areas or 33% in one. So I always make the point of saying, let's look for other things because your child might not make the cutoff for just one thing. So that's just a right. very simple um, point.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, and many early intervention, when, when EI sends people to, to a family's home to assess their children, many of those uh, evaluators are pretty good at, at getting kids to qualify. And that doesn't mean that they're fudging data or no. lying. They're just looking for subtle things that will help. Um, so I'm actually glad that you brought up the other delays because I, I forgot to mention before, but technically autism does not include the diagnosis of autism does not require delays in other areas like fine motor skills, gross motor skills. It's really the social communication and the repetitive um, restricted behaviors. However, many kids with autism particularly will have fine motor delays. They're often low tone, so sort Mm -hmm. of floppy kids have difficulty with coordination almost except for the really the highest tier in terms of functioning with autism, almost all of those kids will have difficulties with buttons, with zippers, um, handwriting, and and that can be an additional service that they'll qualify. And then some will also have fine, will have gross motor delays. So they might walk on time, but it might be a little more subtle. They might not know how to jump when they're four, or they might need to hold on to the banister to get up the stairs when they're six years old, which they shouldn't need to anymore. So looking for
1: those delays can also help get a child appropriate services. Absolutely. And by the way, they can also not uncommonly have feeding issues. So I told you before we started that my daughter was severe. She didn't eat food until she was four. So she had extensive feeding therapy. Um, Some kids, by the way, like my daughter should have had, in retrospect, gone to a special center. There's one at St. Mary's where they have an intensive feeding therapy. The regular feeding therapy wouldn't be adequate for someone as severe as my daughter was. And I have seen um, some children who have actually had scurvy which is a severe vitamin C deficiency. So there is a spectrum of feeding disorders and that can be included in the services or like I said, done as a specialized program for the most severe end.
2: Yeah. And, and we were talking about this before. And when we were talking about uh, scurvy, actually, I've seen kids with rickets. That's what I was thinking of um, oh, wow. rickets with that uh, osteum with just of the D, bones yeah. because they don't need any vitamin D deficiency. They won't need any dairy. Um, sometimes the feeding difficulties with autism are oral motor coordination, where they mm-hmm. just don't have the skills to coordinate their chewing and swallowing. Um, and like you said, the St. Mary's program, uh, there's also a program at St. Joseph's in New Jersey that's fantastic. And there are other similar programs. Um, and sometimes it's part of the restricted behaviors and the restricted interests where, for example, the sensory sensitivities come in. So I've seen children with autism who will need anything that they have to chew. Mm-hmm. So they'll swallow down pasta, they'll eat anything sort of pureed anything crunchy that requires chewing, they will not eat. And they know how they can, but it's that, that severe sensory sensitivity Um, or kids who will not eat anything dairy because they don't like the taste. So we, I had a child uh, I took care of in the hospital who had rickets because of that. Um, So, or, or who won't eat anything orange, for example, or anything with a strong smell. So there can be many different factors involved in the feeding difficulties of autism, but it's important to keep an eye out for those because they can, they can hide under the more dramatic symptoms of autism. You know, you might be so
1: focused on the child's not speaking and not mm. recognize that wait, the child's too and not eating solid foods. Right. And I beg pediatricians to pay attention to this and not just the numbers on the scale because they can be normal weight and height and yet okay. malnourished or just not progressing in in their eating. And that may not be addressed through you know early intervention or services unless someone asks for it. And to pay attention mm-hmm. whether they need something more and intensive. feeding
2: therapy can be part of early intervention too
1: so it, it exactly. can be but Sometimes it may not be it, but it can yeah. be provided but it may not be intense enough like i said for for um the patient with scurvy who needed to have the intensive program for my daughter even though she was receiving early intervention from 11 months old it wasn't intensive wow. enough in retrospect she was getting all that little brushing in the mouth and all that kind of stuff and the feeding therapy and the speech therapy and <clears> it wasn't <throat> adequate um in retrospect so pediatricians especially, and, and parents who are advocating for their children should be aware of that. So I just wanna backtrack a little bit, why get the autism diagnosis? Because I certainly have parents I, who want you, you anything, my mind. <laughs> but the autism diagnosis, they don't yes. want that label. Why should so, they do it? You read my
2: mind. I was about to say, this is a perfect segue to another really important topic, which is, mm-hmm. which is why give that diagnosis. And, and exactly as you said, um, people, parents are very afraid of an autism diagnosis, understandably so. But when I give a diagnosis or when I say, I, I think this is what a child has and you need more, more intensive testing, um, I really emphasize that the chi- your child's the same child they were yesterday and the day before and three days ago. Uh, the diagnosis of autism just helps us, A, understand them better, and B, access the services that they need. So my perspective is the earlier you can get a diagnosis of autism, the better because that child will be able to get help. Um, and that, that does come with caveats. I've had parents of six month olds who come to me panic that their baby isn't making consistent eye contact and could this be autism? Yeah, it could be, but it could be a million other things and it could just be a normal baby. So you have to be a little bit cautious about the earlier the better, but certainly by the time a child is 18 months old, if we're even thinking about autism, if they have a positive MCHAT um, screening questionnaire, the, getting the diagnosis can really only help them. Um, hiding from a diagnosis is not going to change who a child is. They're not going to start speaking because no one gave them a diagnosis of autism, but giving an appropriate diagnosis can a help them access services. Like I said before, and B can also provide families with a community of people they can Mm -hmm. rely on and can lean on, Um, to networking with other parents of children Mm -hmm. with autism, having a child in a, in a class with other kids who are similar so that they can maybe have playdates together. um, can be that that kind of community support and social support can be invaluable to families of a child with autism who can often feel isolated and that no one really understands what they're going through.
1: Right and I can speak as a parent here that you know my daughter's 27 we still do not have a specific diagnosis but getting that autism diagnosis which by the way she didn't get till she was 10 or 11 even though she had been in early intervention from 11 months old. And again, the diagnostic criteria has shifted. This is one reason why we're seeing more cases, just because we are getting reclassified um, of cases. Um, It helped so much. I cannot begin to tell you how much it helped to talk to other parents whose kids also had eating issues or social issues or issues finding the right school program. That social support and that finding people who are in through the same boat as you, even if not exactly the same boat, um, is Is invaluable. It really, really is. So that's really part C, which is the support part of the reasons to get the diagnosis. And by the way, it doesn't define who your child is, but it can drive services. The diagnosis is not supposed to drive services, but the reality, particularly for ABA, you know what? Anyone with disabilities can benefit from ABA. Yeah. So if your child has really doesn't meet criteria for autism because they have ADHD, severe ADHD or global delays, and they manage mm-hmm. to get that autism label and get that ABA, it's going to help them. You I can't agree. go wrong. You know, I, I do think that's why I do think
2: our statistics are probably a little bit skewed because mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, we we try to help families by... Saying, well, you know, technically, they do meet the diagnostic criteria for autism. I think we can we can justify a diagnosis. You know, not lying, not making things up, like I said before, with early intervention. But looking for reasons to give a diagnosis because it will help a kid get the help that they need and the services that they need. And for some children, it, it getting those services early can make a remarkable difference. Um, back to that guilt piece, I don't, mm. I, I never want families to feel like oh, if they had recognized it earlier, things would have been better. Oh, it's our fault that we didn't get her ABA when she was four. And that's why now she's not potty trained when she's seven. That's not necessarily the case, but for some children, getting services, getting speech therapy on board, getting ABA on board as early as
1: possible can change outcomes. Absolutely. And the one-on-one- on for one, everyone, but right, for the, some children. For me, from my perspective, the one-on-one therapy is the most helpful thing we have to do for kids on the spectrum. And so in general, more early is better. not always because you have some kids who can't tolerate the intensity of it or they get tons of therapy and they just can't, they're just screaming the whole time. So every child is different, every situation is different. But I think those are really important points. So then why do other, then why do people seek other diagnoses or other treatments? That's a whole separate category. And I'm gonna just take a minute to say, I've seen the PANDAS diagnosis be sought after in lieu of, the autism diagnosis, and I'm going to just say here that I'm going to be doing that as a separate topic because it's so, so important to address, not just PANDAS instead of autism, but what is the PANDAS, which is pediatric, autoimmune, neurodevelopmental disorders associated with strep, which has become PANS because they've discovered other infections. Um, That's gonna be another topic with, I found an expert from um, a center at Stanford, uh, Margot Dannemann, to do that with, but why would people do that then?
2: I really think the main reason is that there's no cure for Mm -hmm. autism. It's really, uh, it's a lifelong condition. Some children who are diagnosed early and are on the mild end of the spectrum will quote grow out of it. And maybe their symptoms become less and less apparent Mm -hmm. as they get older. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes in in rare cases, but sometimes they don't qualify for the diagnosis anymore by the time they're seven or eight. Now, would that have happened anyhow? Was it because of the services? No one ever knows. Um, But the bottom line is this is a lifelong condition that requires lifelong management. And we are getting better at managing symptoms, both with medication and with therapies. Um, but there's no magic pill. You know, there's no there's no prescription I can give to a family of a child with autism that will cure their autism. And as as a parent, you know, most parents want something that they can cure to make their child better, to give them an easier path through life. Um, so the diagnosis of autism is scary, and people often seek something else that that is just easier to manage, easier to deal with and curable. Um, But unfortunately, denying a diagnosis of autism is not going to change what a child has. And as we said before, getting an appropriate diagnosis can get them the appropriate therapies. I've seen parents who go down rabbit holes and look for every other possible diagnosis and treatment. um, And on the one hand, sure, it's your time, it's your money, do what you want with it, but if it's preventing a child from getting the services that they actually need and that will actually help them, they're harming their child instead of helping them. And it, of course it comes from a good place and a place of love, but sometimes I have to be the tough love neurologist and say, you right. need to stop doing this. We have to focus on on what we do know on the autism and give him or her the help that we think will change his life or her life and will help them you know, improve their symptoms.
1: Right, and I think that also there's two parts to that. One part is looking for the magic treatment and one part is looking for the cause right? And sometimes it's the cause so we can get the magic treatment. Um, So I think that looking for causes, there's nothing wrong with looking for that as long as it's balanced with facing what the child's problems are and dealing with them then. And I think also looking for treatments in addition to the mainstream treatments that we've talked about, you know, so-called alternative treatments, right? Because there's so much we still don't know about autism. There's a very reasonable approach which says, well, we don't know yet but I have my child in front of me right now. So how do yes, you feel and- about alternative treatments as augmenters instead of replacements? Because we're saying quite clearly, if your treatment is replacing the t- proven treatment and your child is being kept from a proven treatment while you are running around doing experimental things, that's a problem. But what about in addition? So, and this is once. Families have have gotten
2: the diagnosis and accepted the diagnosis of autism. Um, like I said before, there's no cure. So what we can provide is help, but we can provide we cannot provide a definitive treatment for autism. So of course families want to find, like I said before, anything that will help their child. Um, and that can range from, I mean, I've had families do things like hyperbaric oxygen, fetal matter, uh, a fecal matter transplant, yeah. um, stem that's cells. That's you know cbd oil everything you can imagine under the sun and i i tend to be i'm a scientist so i do look for data and i like to see reliable data before recommending a treatment so you know i think science has a lot to learn clearly we've learned so much since i started medical school in 2002 which is a long time ago now and we've come so far from what we know about many conditions and the treatments available and I think the next 20 years will make even greater strides and understand more. So I try to be humble and recognize that we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. We don't know everything about treatment and something that might be fringe and experimental now might be standard of care in five years. That said, be cautious if it's if it's only available from sort of out-of-the-box providers and you can't find anyone with a, a medical license who's willing to provide it, for, for example, also, be cautious if it's something that's only available at for cash. that insurance won't cover, and the price is very high. Um, unfortunately, there are a, lot, are a lot of people out there looking to take advantage of desperate families who are willing to try anything. So, I I encourage my patients to talk to me first. Mm-hmm. Let me know what you're willing, what you're trying. If it's not harmful, and you have the time and resources to to uh, pursue it. And it's not, as you said before, Lisa, it's not getting in the way of proven treatment. Sure, go ahead and try it. But some things that families might think are, oh, this sounds great, this could be curative, could actually be harmful. So I always encourage families to be upfront with me I'm not going to fire you from my practice because you're trying something out of the box. I'm not going to yell at you. It's a conversation. And I wanna be at least aware of what families are trying just so that I know what's out there and hopefully give some advice, look up some studies for, for families, tell you, oh, well, there is some preliminary data or no, this has been disproven over and over again. Or, well, you think this sounds good but it can actually put them at risk of seizures, for example. So that is, it's a two-way
1: conversation right and be aware of the panacea approach if it's supposed to cure everything it probably will cure nothing yeah. although you don't know so i think that having the humility and having the trust with your healthcare professional whether it's your neurologist or your pediatrician um i think is so so important and i think that we could talk about this all day, and never (laughs) finish this topic, but I want to thank you so much. I think this is a fabulous introduction to the topic, and I really appreciate all your time and all your expertise. My
0: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the JOMA Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website www.joma.org, that's J O W M A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.